So this morning we are on week two of our series of big questions about Christianity and we're taking another look at the Bible. Uh, We talked last week about how the Bible is the story of people and that it's also the story of God and the two are intertwined through its pages. And we said we're going to try to explain that story by looking at it like a box set the Bible story box set, seasons one, two, and three. So season one is what we call the Old Testament. Season two, that we call the New Testament. And season three is the one that's happening right now. In season three, we are invited to join the cast. Season three is when God invites us to come into his story and invites us to invite him to come into our story, for his story and our story to be brought together, for those stories to merge in a way that means my story will never be the same again. Now, if you were still awake by the end of last week's talk, um, you may remember that I promised quite a lot for this week, uh, arguably, in hindsight, overpromised. I said that we would explain how to understand Genesis how to understand Revelation, why we have an Old Testament as well as a New Testament, how Israel fits in that story, how Jesus fits in that story, and how he is the very center and pivotal event of that story, all in 25 minutes. So realistically, we're not going to manage all of that today, but I promise that we will make sure that we cover it, the whole of seasons one, two, and three, by the time we've finished next week. Okay, so this week we're going to be talking about biblical interpretation. Woo, yeah, don't let that scare you though, because all that means is how best to understand the stuff that we read. And what that involves is that we need to know a little bit about the rules of the game. Now, if you go to uh, watch a sport for the first time, say you go to a rugby match for the first time, your enjoyment and your ability to grasp what's going on on the pitch will be far greater if someone's explained the rules to you first. And if you want to actually play the game yourself, then you need to learn those rules and, of course, to follow them. It doesn't work for players to just be self-taught or just guess or invent our own rules. So if we're going to make sense of the Bible, then there's a few rules that we need to know. One of the things we talked about last week, we said that the Bible was the story of people and their stories, and that they lived those stories out in particular places and particular times and in a particular context. So they were necessarily time-bound in that way. But we also noticed that it's the story of God intertwined with those people and their time-bound stories. So if we're going to make sense of the Bible for our story, the story that we're living in, we have to figure out how and in what ways that original story is timeless and time-bound. We have to figure out the divinity and the humanity. Because if we can't grasp that, then we'll never be able to explain to our friends how the Bible is true and how it has authority for our lives today. So when we approach the Bible, it's very easy for us to think that God wrote it for us, for you and me in the 21st century. 
It's easy for us to forget that before the Bible ever says anything to you and me, it was saying something to an original audience before that. So one of the first rules of biblical interpretation is for us to ask ourselves the question in terms of what we're reading, what did it mean to them then? To the writer and that original audience for whom it was originally written. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit can't speak to us in other ways through a verse or passage now. But we should always start by wanting to know what it would have meant then to respect that original writer and his original audience because it meant something to them before it ever meant anything to us. Otherwise, it would never have been handed down to us as inspired text. It had to have made sense to them then if it was ever going to make its way into the canon so that we could read it, or Luther or Calvin could read it, or Billy Graham could read it thousands of years later. So for it to make sense to them, God had to use language and ideas and illustrations and concepts that that writer and his audience would have been familiar with. He had to use those as the framework for conveying to them what he wanted them to know. He had to use literary genres, in other words, types of literature, that that original writer and his audience would have been familiar with. He had to work within the conceptual framework of what people at the time thought was obvious about life, the universe, and everything. Only deviating from that, or challenging that obvious, where he felt it was absolutely necessary to do so. So in other words, God accommodated the people he was writing to. He spoke into and through their time-bound context in order that they could grasp what he needed to convey what we would call the important theological truths. What he didn't do was to waste time trying to correct the time-bound cultural wrapper that those theological truths were being conveyed in. The time-bound wrapper was not his priority. Debating the wrapper with them would only have been a distraction. So God's priority was how best was he to communicate theological truths to that particular people in that particular place and time and culture in ways that they could grasp, understand and accept. So let me give you an example of that. Let's say I could jump in the DeLorean time machine from Back to the Future and I could go and see John Calvin, one of the great heroes of the Reformation and have a cup of tea with him but I only had one hour before I had to head back to the 21st century. So I'd have to make a choice about what I was going to talk to him about. Now, in case you're thinking that I look a bit like that eccentric Doc, Martin, uh, Doc Brown, not Doc Martin, Doc Brown character on the left, you are wrong. I look much more like the other guy. Anyway, so I only have this one hour with John Calvin, uh, so as the most important theologian of his day, my priority would have to be what was most important theologically at that time for the people at that time. And 
that will be putting down a few theological foundations for the future as well. So I'd need to make sure that I didn't get sidetracked, wasting time talking about things that were not most important for them at that time in their world. There would be plenty of things that I could tell them about, of course, Um, plenty of things that we know today about science and cosmology and technology, or even some things like equality and human rights. So I would have to be very disciplined. It would be so tempting to want to correct them about all sorts of things. For example, uh, neither Calvin nor Luther believed that the earth revolved around the sun. They thought that the earth was the centre of the universe and that the sun revolved around us. People at that time thought that that was obvious. Calvin said that people like Copernicus, who said the earth revolved around the sun, were deranged and madmen and possessed by the devil. So wrong though they were about that, Calvin and I could have wasted that whole hour arguing about something that I would never have been able to convince him about at the time. And if I was to lead with that in our conversation, even though it would have been true, what I was saying would have been true, and even though me keeping quiet about it would put me at risk of being accused of allowing him to continue to believe something that wasn't true, if I was to lead with that, then he would almost certainly have thought that I was nuts. And he wouldn't listen to anything else that I had to say or anything important that I had to say, let alone be willing to pass that truth on to anyone else. So the wisest thing for me to do in that conversation would be to accommodate how he saw things, to stay silent on stuff that actually didn't matter at the time and just focus on the theological stuff that was important at that time for those people. And maybe just sow a few seeds for the future to start them thinking about a couple of things that over time would become really important, but people wouldn't be able to make complete sense of right now, like equality and human rights, where I would need to play the long game. So I wonder if you can see how, for similar reasons, Almighty God might do the exact same thing when it comes to communicating to us through Scripture. How that would be the wisest thing for him to do as well, working with those biblical writers and that original audience. How he too decided to accommodate what people saw as obvious about life at that time. And for him to stay silent on stuff that didn't really matter or that they wouldn't be able to hear at that time. Even though there would have been a a thousand things that God could have corrected. Just as I'm sure he could correct us now on a thousand things we think today, if he wanted to. And even though by God staying silent on where people in the ancient world had some of these things wrong, areas such as science and geography and cosmology and physiology, even if it would put God at risk of being accused by future generations, like people today, of allowing those biblical authors and audiences to continue to believe some things that weren't true. Now, what we're talking about here is what's called communication theory. Uh, Don't let that 
scathe. The reason we're talking about it is because the Bible is an act of communication. But it's not just an act of communication by God in a vacuum, even though we call it the Word of God. It's an act of communication by God to people and through people. So our humanity is intimately involved in that communication. So we need to know a little bit about how communication works because it is not all about just the communicator. So for example, if I go to do a talk in a church in another country, the first thing I have to think about is who is my audience? Because for any communication to succeed, the communicator has to be wise in accommodating where their audience is at or where they're starting from. So I'll be asking myself questions like this. Am I talking to people who would mainly say that they were Christians? What's their church background? As John Mumford puts it, what's their PCE, their prior Christian experience? What's their age profile and their cultural profile? What kind of country are they living in, politically, economically, and socially? What's been happening to these people? And what's it like to live in their world with their concerns and their hopes and their fears? And it's my awareness and my willingness to take account of all of these things that will have a massive impact on whether or not I'm going to communicate successfully to these people in what I want to be saying. My objective is to bless them with what God has for them now, what's most important for them now. My objective is not to show them how clever I am and how much I know and just dump loads of information on them. You see, the key thing is that for my communication to succeed, I have to use language and concepts and styles of communication and cultural assumptions that my audience is already familiar with, that they can easily relate to, and that they see as obvious in their world. This is not the time or place to try to teach lots of new or different language and concepts and styles of communication and cultural assumptions that my audience would not already be familiar with or see as obvious in their world. I have to accommodate where they are at if I'm going to communicate what's important, what God has for them at this time. A theologian called John Walton said this, every successful act of communication is accomplished by various degrees of accommodation on the part of the communicator for the sake of the audience. Accommodation that will tailor the communication to the needs and circumstances of the audience. Without this, effective communication could not take place. Okay, so what does that then look like when it comes to the Bible? And particularly, how does that impact on how we understand something like Genesis? So we find in the Bible both the substance of what God wanted to communicate to his people, the what, in other words, and we see the means by which he chose to do it, the how. The content in the Bible is both and, both the substance of the communication and the means of the communication combined together, because that is how communication works, as we've said. 
So the substance of what we find in the Bible is blessings and promises and teachings, what we might call the, the theology, and the means of conveying that are stories, parables, legends, songs, and poems using the literary styles and the genres of the day, some of which we no longer have today as they had then. So the substance of the communication, the theological truth that God wanted conveyed, will be true because that's what God intended to communicate and that's why it's completely reliable. But we mustn't have the same expectations of the means as we do the substance because that's where the accommodation to the audience comes into it. And the means, the truth-conveying vehicle that God used, need not be true in that sense, any more than a poem or a parable or a piece of artwork has to be true for it to be a great way of communicating truth to us. As any artist or poet or songwriter or any author who's ever used metaphor or analogy or stories to convey truth, like C.S. Lewis and the Narnia books, as any of them know very well. So now to use some language that you might be familiar with, you might have come across, language that gets argued about a lot in theology circles when it comes to the nature of the Bible, the substance of that communication that God intended will be inerrant, infallible and authoritative in our lives. But the means of the communication that he used to convey it to us may well be cultural, transitory and therefore fallible. The inerrancy and the authority are located in what God intended to convey. The accommodation for the sake of the audience, culture, style, genre, is located in the vehicles that he chose to best convey it. So we just need to avoid confusing the two. So with all that in mind, we'll be able to make sense of five quick statements that will help set the scene for everything that Genesis is and isn't wanting to tell us. Number one, the Bible is not a science textbook. Its intention is not to give us a scientific explanation of how the world works, but a theological explanation of how the world works. Any information that we find in the Bible about the natural world is always something that everyone can see for themselves or that represents the typical way of thinking in the ancient world at the time. Number two, which follows on from that, is that there is no new scientific revelation in the Bible. God resisted the temptation to offer them new insights or little clues for us to find later on how the world really worked. And, and if you think about it, the reason for that is because over time, the scientific understanding of how the world works changes, doesn't it? So which particular understanding at which particular point in time ought God to have chosen? It would be rather arrogant of us in the 21st century that he should have chosen our understanding as it is presently especially as that will almost certainly be superseded by scientific discoveries in the future. Number three, 
following on from that. God chose human communicators located in a particular point in time, language, and culture, and communicated what he wanted to communicate through them into that particular world. So while the theological truths that we find in Scripture may be timeless, they necessarily come to us in a time-bound wrapper, a time-bound context, because there's no other way that they could come to us. They have to come to us at some point in time with some understanding in the Scripture. So in terms of how the original audience would have understood Genesis, they weren't in the least interested in how the world was made. They were only interested in why and the who made the world and why the world is the way that it is and why that affects them and their world and who they are in their lives today. And that, of course, should really be our interest too, what we're looking for when we read Scripture as well. And then finally, number five, we need to respect the literary styles and genres that we find in the Bible instead of finding fault with them or trying to make them into the literary styles and genres of our day. And what that means in practice, summed up, is that we need to respect their use of picture language and painting prophetic pictures and the way that they would integrate history and legend in their stories and be selective about which bits of a genealogy they would include and which bits they wouldn't and how they were less concerned than we would be with precise uh, numerical accuracy. Simply because that's how they did things in the literature and genre of their day. All of which means that when we are looking at Genesis and Revelation and lots of the stuff in between as well, what we're looking for is truths about theology, not truths about the natural world. Or to put it in university terms, we're studying in the arts and humanities department, we're not studying in the maths and science department. We're looking at how these biblical authors communicated truths in a world which was a hearing-dominant culture, not a text-dominant culture. A world where there was no need for the vast majority of people to be literate. They only needed a few scribes to create archives and draw up the occasional contract for them, rather like solicitors do today. So what mattered most was conveying the most important theological truths in ways that would be most easily remembered and most easily passed on generation to generation by word of mouth. So if you saw the uh, weekly email that, as Rachel said, came out Thursday this week, and if you took the chance to have a quick read of uh, the first couple of chapters of Genesis, uh, here are some of the things that were happening there. Uh, which, with the background I've just uh, suggested, will help to explain why some of Genesis reads as it does. I'm just going to run through these very quickly. So verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. The surrounding nations to Israel had various legends about how the world was created by various gods. And so Genesis is saying, no, the world was created by one God, the one true God. And he did it by the power of his spoken word. God said, let there be, and there was. 
The reason that light appears in verse 3 of chapter 1, even though the sun and the moon aren't created until verse 16, is because the ancients didn't realize that light came from the sun. Which is understandable when you think that when the sun is covered by cloud, it's still light in the daytime. In verse 16, God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. And the reason that the sun and the moon are not given names and that it's made crystal clear that it was God who made them is because what it's telling people is that the sun and the moon and the stars are not themselves gods, as the surrounding nations thought they were. Because to give it a name, give something a name in that culture was to give it significance. To reinforce that Genesis 1 is not a manufacturing account, the Hebrew word for made, God made or God created, is never used in the Bible in a manufacturing sense, only in a kind of bringing it about sense. So, for example, when that same word is used in Psalm 51, verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, it obviously has nothing whatsoever to do with manufacturing a physical heart. Verse 6 says, let there be a firmament dividing the waters under the firmament from the waters that are above the firmament. And what that's talking about is the sky, which the ancients thought was solid. So they believed that there was water held back behind it and that that was where rain came from when God opened windows in the firmament, just like Velux roof windows, if you've ever come across those, exactly the same. So, for example, if you take a look at the account of the flood and Noah's ark in Genesis 7, it says the windows of the heavens were opened, which wasn't just pretty poetic language. That's really what they thought was happening. All ancient cultures believed in a flat earth that was like a disk with that firmament sitting like a dome on top of it. And that's why verse 11 of Psalm 103 was such good news, where it says God removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Now, of course, if they'd known that the world was round, they'd have realized that eventually they would come back to us again. <laughs> verse 26 and 27 of chapter 1, the pinnacle of God's creation is man and woman. Unlike every other creature, we are made in God's image and likeness. And that's significant because in the ancient world, an image or an idol was believed to carry the essence of what it represented. Now, the other nations believed that humans were created to be the slaves of the gods, to just do work for them, that they were of low value and expendable. But Genesis is telling us that we were created to be the representatives of God, of the very highest worth and value. A people called to image him in this world and to this world. Every day God spoke and created something and he said it was good. But on that sixth day in verse 31 after he'd created us, it says God saw everything he had made and it was very good. And you know, despite everything that's gone wrong with it since and 
despite that image of God in us having become dirty and torn and damaged, just like an oil painting that's waiting to be restored, despite the damage that sin has done and despite our mess-ups, God still looks at his creation and still says, it's very good, which is why he believes it was worth saving, not just giving up and starting again. And that is why each of us has a hope of resurrection and our world has a hope of resurrection, being saved and being made anew with all of the bad stuff taken away. And then finally, we talk about a seven-day creation, don't we? But, you know, technically, it's a six-day creation because on the seventh day, God rested, which is where the Jewish Sabbath comes from. And the commandment that one day each week God's people should rest as well. But what that meant was not just a lazy day of uh, doing nothing and just lying in bed or going shopping. It was a day of enjoying God and enjoying his creation. So the Sabbath was an enjoying day. And I think that's a great way for us to think about it in our situation. Sundays, a day of enjoying God together and enjoying God's creation together. So next week, in the final part three, we're going to go through all of the key episodes in seasons one to three of this Bible story box set. So we're going to start with where creation began, this beautiful world that God made and said was very good, and these people that God made in his image, and we're going to look at how that all started to go wrong and how God set about saving it. And we'll answer all those remaining questions about why we have an Old Testament as well as a New Testament, how Israel fits, and how Jesus came into that story and transformed it. And we'll also see how we find a correspondence between how Genesis begins the story and how Revelation ends the story. So tune in for that if you're around next week.